uh, you have enjoyed worshiping us, uh, worshiping with us, uh, the Lord in song, and uh, we're going to jump right into our message today. I don't want to say I'm excited to share this, but I do know that I'm eager to share it because, y'all, I'm going to tell you right now, I labored on this thing. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get it done kind of labor. I mean, this was an intensive message, a powerful word, but an intensive message um, you know, that he's laid on my heart for you today. We have a ton of scriptures to, to sift through. And, um, and I'm just telling you, man, the Lord is, he's, he's speaking a powerful word to us. So y'all get prepared for that. We're going to jump right in today. We're going to be coming from the book of Joel, but we're going to be all over the word of God today. But our main topic or main passages are going to be coming from the book not the chapter, not the verse, but the book of Joel. Somebody say amen. amen. It's only three chapters, though, so uh, we'll get to it. I'm sure, uh, you know, the book of Joel is the second book of what we call in the English canon uh, the Minor Prophets. Uh, most of you have probably heard of that distinctive title, either the Major or the Minor Prophets. And uh, these names, if you're not real familiar with them, can be quite misleading if you've never taken the time to discover, you know, why they gave these titles to these uh, group of books in the Old Testament. Uh, the major prophets included the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. However, Jeremiah and Lamentations are lumped together because in the Hebrew canon they were viewed as one book, just like First and Second Chronicles. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They were actually written together and viewed as one uh, volume. Um, again, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel are called the major prophets. Not because they're more important prophets. That's where the confusion might set in. You know, we, maybe because you're a pastor or you've heard uh, the, most of the major prophets, Daniel and... Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those preached more, you know, so maybe that's why they're the major prophets, but that's not why. They're, they're called the major prophets because, uh, it, because of the length of, of the writings, not because of the importance. We know that God is no respecter of persons. All Scripture is profitable for, you know, for, um, you know, His, His will for, for our lives. And, uh, <clears throat> and then we look at... Um, you know, the fact that they were much longer than the minor prophets. So the minor prophets are called such because they are much shorter than the major prophets. And these books include Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. How would you like that for, to be your name, by the way? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Another name for the composition of the minor prophets is actually called the Book of the Twelve. And this name was given because, believe it or not, these 12 books were actually viewed as one book. In the Hebrew canon, the 12 books here, the book of the 12, all those Hosea through Malachi were viewed as one volume. Um, so for those of you who don't recognize them by name, I'm talking about the final books of the Old Testament. The very last 12 books that's located before you get to the New Testament in your Bible. And the entire length of all 12 of these books was short enough to fit on one scroll. So that's why it was called the Minor Prophets, because of the length of the actual writing, not because of the importance. 
The theme of the, minor, uh, of the books of the minor prophet, prophets mainly focus on covenant breaking, the day of the Lord, and restoration through judgment. Something that we really don't you know, care to experience, but God has a reason for why he exercises judgment on his people, and that's to bring restoration. So let's pause right here and look at these major themes in a little bit of greater detail. Let's first remember the first covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So Genesis 12, <clears throat> 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That was the first Abrahamic covenant that God made between you know, him and the establishment of his people, Israel. So a covenant was made here between God and Abraham, or Abram, because at this time God had not yet changed his name, to raise up a nation from his seed that would be chosen and set apart for the purposes and the will of God Almighty. Somebody say amen. amen. On Mount Sinai, the Lord reinforced this covenant with Moses in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. In the third month, in Exodus 19, 1 through 6, in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up to, unto God. That's really cool. That's a cool thing. Moses went up unto God. That would have been something to see. And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and the children of Israel. So God is meeting with Moses, giving Moses the words that he was to speak to his people, the children of Israel. He said, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, that's a big, that two-letter word there, if. That's a big word. A small word that packs a powerful punch. If ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. I'm going to pause there before I read this last verse and talk about this word peculiar. Because we hear that word kind of thrown around from time to time. You know, you might hear a preacher get up. He might be going in in the spirit just preaching like you ain't never heard. And he might talk about we're a peculiar people. We're a set aside people. We're, we're set apart. All this. Well, that word peculiar basically means to be set apart as exclusive property. So, we, you know, it has a connotation of being strange. But the reason it's, it's strange is because it's not like the rest. That's, that's the main reason why we view that word with a level of, you know, associating it with being strange. But it, it really means that it is a set-apart people as exclusive property. 
So think about that. A peculiar people, a set-apart people, the exclusive property of God, that right there, that's not a small thing, somebody. That's a big deal. So then the the last verse here, verse 6, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So this covenant, this promise that God was making to Abraham through Abraham to his people had not yet come to pass. You know, he said, ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. Ye shall be unto me a holy nation. Speak these words to my children. So as we study through the historical narrative of Israel, and that basically means the historical narrative, that means the history of Israel that's located in your Bible, it's not just some made-up, make-believe fantasy story. It's not something that, you know, I, you know on Wednesday I talked about the uh, group of men with pointy hats and, you know, flowing robes. You know, it, that's not how you know, we get these stories from the Bible. And I hate to even call them stories because sometimes, you know, that word can have a, a connotation of, you know, being made up, but, but it's not. This is historical narrative, which means it's telling us the, the, the history of, of God's people, the real history. So as we study through this historical narrative of Israel and the covenant that God made with them, we see the promise that God will keep them, He will bless them, He will prosper them in all they do as long as they keep Him first. The if and then covenant that God made with His people. Now, in order to really put this thing into its proper perspective, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 2 through 9. This is some powerful stuff, and God really is laying out His covenant between Him and His people, specifically the requirements of the kings that God placed over Israel. So, you know, this is a God appearing to Solomon in the second dream. 1 Kings 9, 2 through 9. That the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time. Just to pause there for a brief moment. The first time that God appeared to Solomon was in chapter 3 of 1 Kings. And that's when the Lord gave Solomon wisdom and riches beyond his wildest imaginations. Because Solomon didn't ask for those things when God said, I'll grant to you your heart's desire. What is it that I can give you? And Solomon, instead of saying, I want to be the richest, most powerful king that ever lived... He said, Lord, I just want to be able to lead your people in the way that they should go in a way pleasing and honoring to you, our God. And it blew him away. It blew the Lord away. So he not only gave him all the wisdom above any man that should that ever live or should ever live, but he also made him the richest. And so he appeared to him for the second time as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. So that's the reference to the first dream at Gibeon. Verse 3. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication. What's going on here is Solomon had just finished the temple and the king's house. And the Lord told him, when you're finished with it, I want you to bless this and set it apart for me. And I will come and dwell with you. And so the Lord and so he did that. He made the prayer. He blessed the temple. He blessed the king's house. And the Lord said to him, I've heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness 
to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then, here's that if then again, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever. As I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall at all turn from following me, or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name. Will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. What does that mean, a proverb and a byword? That means basically, look, this is, this is an example that you can learn from, that you, you can find wisdom. You don't want to be like them because this is what happened to them. Look in verse 8. It really you know, paints this picture a little stronger. And at this house which is high, everyone that passeth by it shall be astonished. They won't even believe that is this nation that was once great. When, God, when they turned their backs on God and God told them, look, when you do this, I'm going to take my hand off of you and you're not going to receive those blessings that you once received. Be warned now. It's going to be such an astonishing sight to behold that the people that pass by it shall be astonished and shall hiss and shall say, why hath the Lord done thus unto the land and to this house? Look what he says in verse 9. And they shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them, and have served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. That's a strong Word of warning right there from the mouth of God Himself. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God reminds the people of Israel of this two-party covenant. It's not something that He withholds from them. He doesn't keep it a secret and just, you know, He threw it out there one time and He never said anything else about it. God is constantly reminding the people of Israel of the two-party covenant that He made between them and, and the nation. The blessings and the curses And guess what? Even after hearing the Word of God and witnessing His blessings over and over again, the people turn away from Him doing exactly what He told them not to do. I'm going to pause there. This is kind of an aside or a side note. But it reminds me of the fact that, you know, some of us might get into this place to where we think if God could just show Himself to be real, in my life today. If He could give me a sign, Lord, just show me a sign to prove to me that You are who You say You are, that You'll do what You say You do. And honestly, He does that anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to you kind of have the eyes to see and the heart to be ready to, to understand it. But, you know, I tell you, I look over the past of my life and He has shown Himself real in my life over and over again. But, but the, the, the truth in reality is this. God showed Himself to be real in ways that we can't even fathom. 
Look what, and remember, we just read a moment ago about uh, in Exodus chapter 19, where he talked about, remember what I did to the Egyptians. Remember when you were in bondage? Remember what I did to get you out of bondage? All the plagues and all this and that. And then all of a sudden you're caught between the Red Sea and the, the Egyptian army. And then you thought all hope was lost and you caught, and Moses called out to me and I told him to keep on moving because the Egyptians that you see before you, you shall never see them no more again forever. Get up and move. And he parts the Red Sea and they run across on dry land and next thing you know, the enemies of the armies of the Egyptian are swallowed up behind them. They saw this with their own two eyes, and then they get to the other side, what did they do? They were so elated for the handiwork of God in their life and the deliverance of God from bondage, they wrote a song, a hymn of praise and worship for who He was and for His power and His might, and they sang it to Him. But then just a few short days later, with Moses nowhere to be found for a few days, why? Because he's meeting with God to receive the Word for His people of what they should do next. They give up all hope in a matter of a few short days, and they make a golden calf out of the gold that God blessed them with and begin to worship that, even after they saw the miraculous Wonderful works of God right before their own very eyes. So when we say, if we could only have a sign, I'm preaching now, I'm meant to be teaching, y'all. I'm trying to teach up in here. But there's some truth to be discovered in this. Yeah, I can see myself in this place. The truth is this, that you know, God has shown Himself over and over again, and, and, and that doesn't work. You know, a guy used to tell me all the time, Boy, you know what your problem is, is you keep living today off yesterday's miracle. You need to eat today your daily bread, not last week's bread. Quit relying on what God did for you six months ago and start seeking His face so He can do something fresh in your life today. That's what's going to keep you. The, the current relationship, the persistence of your relationship and fellowship with God Almighty and His Word and prayer. Not miracles. You know, and we got a lot of people seeking after miracles in, in this, you know, especially in America today. Good Lord, help us. You know, people talking about, well, you're not rich because uh, you don't have enough faith. You know, God would provide this great miracle in your life if you had enough faith and He'd bless you all this money. Show me that in Scripture. But that's the stuff people are, you know, and if you're not doing this or you're not doing that, and I won't get into the details because I'm really getting off on the side and getting a little excited here, but I just feel so strong about this. We don't seek God for His miracles. That's short-lived. That's short-sighted. He'll do some miracles along the way. Don't get me wrong. He will. But believe me, man, God, the relationship that I have with Him and His Word and, and prayer supersedes any miracle that I could ever ask for in my life. I'm telling you, that is the greatest miracle. The revelation knowledge of having understanding and fellowship with God Almighty. Hallelujah, somebody say amen. Let's keep moving, shall we? Man, need some water all of a sudden. So anyway, after hearing the Word of God and witnessing His blessings over and over again, the people turn away from God doing exactly what He told them not to do. So the book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets, uh, Hosea through Malachi, whatever you want to call them, when viewed as a whole, paints this picture of a sick person. Y'all catch this now. 
It paints a picture of a sick person who has refused to care for his illness right up to the point of death. That's a strong picture. That's a stiff-necked and stubborn individual right there, wouldn't you say? The sickness is sin. Worst of all, it's the sin of spiritual adultery. Yeah, we forget, you know, we, we, you know, associate the word adultery, you know, uh, turning and being unfaithful to your husband and to your wife. But there is also a spiritual adultery that, it, that means that we are unfaithful in our relationship with God. Not so much that we just neglect Him, but we have literally turned aside to worship other gods rather than Him. And what are other gods? What does that mean? Well, I'm not worshiping Baal. I'm not... You know, all hell and Satan. But I'm telling you, that's not just that. That's maybe one way to worship other gods. But the reality is that anything we put before him becomes an idol in our life. And we begin to worship that. So that sickness is sin. And worst of all, the sin, it's the sin of spiritual adultery. But here's what we know. God is faithful. If you believe that, type amen. Y'all say amen. Amen. We know that God is faithful, but Israel has continuously broken the covenant. Concerning the theme, the day of the Lord, you know, we're talking about covenant breaking there for a moment. You know, one of the major themes in these 12 books. Let's turn our attention just for a moment uh, to this theme, day of the Lord. That's the title of our message today we discover that this has somewhat of a double meaning. The day of the Lord, which is a major theme in the book of Joel, and honestly, many of the other books, you know, all of the books you know, have major themes, but they also kind of have uh, some of all of the themes as well, when you really begin to get down and look at it. It's all associated and comes together. Um, the covenant breaking the day of the Lord, and God's judgment that is designed to bring restoration. That's the major themes found in all of these books. So the day of the Lord, a a very major theme in the book of Joel, signifies a day of judgment for Israel's breaking of the covenant. So here we have the covenant's been broken. God warned them what would happen if that were to take place. And now... He sends Joel to begin preaching about the day of the Lord, the coming judgment for Israel's breaking the covenant. Now, God's purpose in this outpouring of judgment is to drive His people into humble submission. Now, when I say it like that, if you don't think about it too deep, that's kind of like a politically correct saying of, Driving them to their knees in complete surrender. In fact, think about this. If this were to happen like in uh, two opposing armies on the world stage, one is far superior than the other. And it marches against this less superior army and drives them into humble submission down to their knees Humble submission meaning like they have no other alternative but to throw their weapons down and to grovel and beg, please don't kill us, we give up. That's humility right there. That takes a great deal of humility 
to get to that point. And let me tell you, God is so powerful and so mighty, He has no problem or no, you know, He can do this very easily. Alright? So God's purpose in this outpouring of judgment is to drive His people into humble submission. Why? To remind them of His absolute sovereignty. Which means He is the one in total control. He is over it all. However, this judgment is not the means within itself. It's not about the judgment per se. Rather, it, the judgment is a means to an end. In other words, God will use this series of extreme suffering at the hands of His people's enemies to draw them back into an intimate relationship with Him. Which is exactly what the prophet Hosea was told to preach before it had to come to this point. Hosea was the first book in the book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets. So before we get too far into this topic, let me... You know, refer to, you know, explain what I refer to as the double meaning of the day of the Lord. There is a real crazy looking and crazy sounding word that you may come across, especially right now, considering the times that we're living in and everybody's mind, you know, kind of coming toward this topic right now because of the uncertainty that's going on in our lives. You know, a lot of people are thinking, you know, in terms of the afterlife and end times and whatnot. Uh, because of what's going on. So if you come across this crazy looking and crazy sounding E-word during your studies one day, I want you to have somewhat of an idea of what this means. The word is eschatology. And I don't say this word to make myself sound smart. But you're going to see this uh, quite often during the times that we're living right now. And I want you to know what it means. Basically, eschatology means the study of the last things. In other words, the end times. It's the study of end times and its prophecies concerning end times, to put it plainly. How this relates to the book of the Twelve here is the fact that yes, God was warning Israel through the prophets to immediately turn back to Him and be saved from the impending judgment that would take place during this time period, um, the late 700s, early 800s, and then on towards, you know, a little bit later and a little bit earlier. But around the late 700s, early 800s, there was an impending judgment that, they, that the Lord called the day of the Lord that was going to take place at that time. However, this day of the Lord also holds meaning for us today in light of the fact that he has not yet exercised the full extent of his judgment reserved for his wayward and disobedient people. We're going deep right now, Pastor Dave. So this day of the Lord also has an eschatological... Somebody say that three times fast. I literally had to practice that before I came and said that. I'm not kidding. My wife was... I'm over here talking about... Uh, eschatological. My wife's like, what, what in the world are you talking about? 
So I had to practice this word so I wouldn't sound real dumb when I brought it to you. Because I am, don't forget, an old backwoods hillbilly preacher. But please understand that this uh, day of the Lord has an end time or an apocalyptic meaning as well. I'm going to take you to uh, and remind you of what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The whole book or the whole letter of 2 Thessalonians has this, this uh, association with uh, the day of the Lord and the end times. Alright, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We could go into a, a lot further in this, but I'm just going to read to you the first four verses. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us. That is some... Very important terminology there. Don't be troubled by spirit because look, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling and fighting a spiritual battle. And there are spiritual forces coming to work against you in order to deceive you against the truth of God Almighty. So don't be troubled by these other spirits, nor by word from men, nor by letter as from us. What does that mean? That means people were, even during Paul's time, writing letters as if they were inspired doctrinal uh, words from God that weren't and deceiving people all over the place. And over and over again, Paul had to address this. And, and he shows you here, that's why, you know, and if you were watching with me on Wednesday as I was teaching on uh, canonization, why we have 66 books in our Bible. This is one of the reasons why they had to distinguish between inspired books and non-inspired books. Because there was tons of um, writings that claimed to be inspired from God that, that definitely weren't. They were contradictory to the Scripture. Alright, so don't be troubled as letter from us as the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, is at hand. Christ is our Lord. Amen? So we're talking about people who were being deceived by false prophets saying the day of the Lord is here. And in fact, it's already passed. The day of the Lord is passed and you missed it. You're not going to heaven now. You're probably, who knows what's going to happen to you. But everyone that's supposed to go, they're gone. That's what this is talking about. So Paul had to address this concern with the church at Thessalonica to put to to rest these false claims and teachings. He says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. There's a lot of interpretations there about what that means. A lot of people talk about a great apostasy, which means a great turning away from the faith. If that's what it means... Lord, help us because has that not happened, especially in America? How many people have fallen away from and discredited or tried to discredit and walked away from the faith in Jesus Christ? Tons of people. But we won't get into that discussion too deep because there's several interpretations of that. 
It says, and then that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Somebody read Isaiah 14, 12, and you'll see a very close association uh, with Isaiah 14, 12 and what he's saying here. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's scary, y'all. It ain't scary if if you're in the body so much, but I say scary because, man, it's kind of sad. You know what I'm saying? There's going to be a lot of people deceived during this, man, because he's going to sit in the temple of God, which we know, and there's some, some different interpretations of that too, but we know that our body is the temple of God. So, you know, just think about that in relation to that for a minute. And showing himself that he is God. So this particular subject obviously goes a whole lot deeper, deeper than we have time to get into in this short discussion, or honestly, deeper than we can possibly understand at this point in history. There's a lot of interpretations, a lot of speculations, but, you know, whatever. Do some research and some study on that. See if the Lord will show you something with it. But what this is basically talking about is the church being called out of this world to the marriage supper of the Lamb. After the man of sin or the Antichrist, the son of perdition, is revealed to wreak havoc in the lives of those who have received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So if they don't love the truth, what do they love? They love the lie. They love the deception. So after the man of sin... Uh, is revealed. That's the Antichrist, the son of perdition. All right? This is some serious stuff that he's talking about right here. Over and over again, the, process, the prophecies of your Bible have come true. Have they come to pass? And eventually, this one right here, the day of the Lord, the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, this one will come true as well. This is why we have made this shift over this past month or so from from a a great deal of preaching to a great deal of teaching. We need to learn and study and understand what the Lord is saying to us for such a time as this. We must be prepared and also seek to prepare those around us for what is to come. You know, many of us have heard from a young child this end-time prophecy preached over and over again. And in many ways, a lot of us have become apathetic or nonchalant in our thinking toward the second coming of Christ. You know, I've heard that preached my whole life. It ain't happened yet. They've been saying we're in the end times for a hundred years. Let me tell you, it's going to happen. It will happen. All right? So don't become apathetic to this. Don't become nonchalant to this idea of the second coming of Christ. You know, the same can be said of Israel. I'm sure they got tired of hearing judgment preached at them like a broken record until God finally showed them what He's saying was true. Then when that happened, I'm sure they were like, man, I wish I would have listened. So Lord, don't let that be me. Don't let it be the ones I love and I care about. Find me faithful in Your Word always, Lord. When I meet You face to face, let me hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in. 
So I told you just a little bit earlier, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Joel and we're going to get there. So the particular background of what was going on during this time of the events of the writings of Joel are intertwined into what we've already been discussing here. Joel was prophesying to the southern nation of Judah sometime around the late 700s and early 800s B.C., so a little over 2,000 years ago. His audience was enjoying, y'all catch this now, his audience was enjoying a sin-filled life of plenty, doing their own thing unconcerned about the affairs of the Lord's work. Until we see in in chapter 1 a devastating plague of locusts that swarmed across the land, devouring every crop in sight. Not to mention a great drought that left them thirstier than they were hungry. Look at chapter 1 in Joel, verses 2 through 5. Joel 1, 2 through 5. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath eaten, the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. I briefly mentioned earlier about how most of us have grown up hearing this end time prophecy, the second coming of Christ, and all what, what all that entails. But that's not something we hear a whole lot about anymore, except during times like what we're going through right now. During times like this, these uncertain times, these financially uncertain, these potentially uh, famine-filled uncertain times, all you know, etc. Something I find interesting is Joe's instruction here to tell our children of the hard times that come against us and why they come. Just look back in a couple of verses that we just mentioned. Tell your children of all that is taking place here and their children's children and the children a generation even after that. So if we'll recall the theme of the first book of the twelve, Hosea, we know that God God used Hosea's marriage to a harlot as a picture of his relationship with Israel. Just like Hosea's wife Gomer had constantly been unfaithful to her husband in marriage, so is Israel to their covenant relationship with God. When Hosea found Homer in the marketplace on sale as a slave, he didn't leave her there and disavow her and turn his back on her like most of us would have done. Instead, he bought her and he brought her home, showing her relentless love. Unconditional love. Between the prophet's preaching and his actions toward his wife, we see God's love for wayward Israel 
even in spite of great rejection. We not only hear, but we also see through this message the impact of human fidelity toward God. What does that mean? What we sometimes fail to realize during our own times of waywardness and doing our own thing is that there is more at stake than just a whole bunch of broken commandments. It's not about the broken commandments, church. God is like a broken-hearted husband who longs for right and pure relationship with His people. And that is exactly the picture that we see here between Hosea and Homer. Although Hosea had every right in his own thinking to turn his back on his unfaithful wife, but like Hosea, God never forsakes His covenant with His people. But this is not to say that it's painless for Him to endure. Please understand. So in order to call His people home, He is willing to go to any length necessary to regain the heart of His people. Because even when he pulls us out of bondage, you know, she was in, over in, uh, you know, being sold into slavery. What happened to Egypt? I mean, to Israel when they were delivered from bondage in, uh, out of Egypt? They returned back to Egypt. Now think about this. So, in order for God to call his people home, he's willing to go to any length necessary to regain the heart of His people. Hence, the day of the Lord spoken of by the prophet Joel. So here is Judah being struck by famine and drought like nothing the old men had ever seen before. To the point that that stories would be told of it for generations to come. Now look in verse 12-15, through we see a call to action because time is running short. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast and call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas, for the day! Exclamation point. For the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Now church, I'm not trying to jump on some bandwagon preaching the end of the world because of this virus. Please understand. But I am fully convinced that God is trying to get our attention in the midst of this. I'm not necessarily saying that He caused it. Not necessarily saying that. But He is definitely using it to His, and not only His, but also our advantage. Because what does it advantage uh, for a man to lose, I mean, to gain the world, but to lose his soul? Do you follow what I'm saying? If we turn our heart to Him as He desires, I'm pretty sure that will be to our advantage. Would you agree with that? 
Somebody say amen. Because it's no secret that the world has turned their backs on God, and like it says in Hosea 14, 13, I sure, you can turn there, Hosea 14, 3, I mean 14, 3, I sure, which is the false god of Assyria that was being worshipped in that province at the time, shall not save us. So some false little G God is not going to save you. Alright? We will not ride upon horses, neither, which means you know, come against them you know, in battle with the sword and, and, the, and the, you know, the spear. Neither will we say any more, y'all catch this now, to the works of our hands. Ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. We will no longer say to the work of our hands, ye are our gods. Too long has this nation and this world worshipped the works of their hands, and the Lord is saying, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like. Neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Church, believers, non-believers, whoever is watching this message here with us, I'm not saying this is tomorrow. But what if it is? Are you truly ready? Can you really say that you are prepared to face the day of the Lord and His judgment and His righteous indignation for the, for the, the waywardness of His people? There is no famine or drought per se here right now. But just at the slightest hint of uncertainty of you not knowing what's going to be available from one moment to the next at the grocery store. Do you follow what I'm saying? At the slightest hint of uncertainty. Right now, we're still blessed. Right now, we still have plenty. But look at what's happening at this slight hint of a coming judgment being poured out upon this nation. And upon not just this nation, this is happening all across the world. Let's not limit it with our own you know, initial surroundings because we live here. It's happening everywhere. Don't put your blinders on. Let alone, we don't even know what's happening moment to moment in our government, in our economy. Our healthcare system, our jobs, our house, our life, etc., at the slightest hint of uncertainty. And the people are borderline paranoid, if not all the way paranoid, 
all over the place right now over this tiny little thing you can barely see with a microscope called COVID-19. You can't even see it, but the evidence of it is there. But let me tell you about what is coming. You won't be able to miss it. The true people of God can see it from a mile away. But the lost will succumb to the great delusion as talked about in the latter part of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that we read from earlier. We didn't read this part, but you can read it for yourselves. Uh, the, The lost will succumb to the great delusion not sent by Satan, but sent by God because people did not have a love for the truth. But instead, they would rather have pleasure in unrighteousness than live in reality and have love for the truth. Remember what Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will make you free. So when you know that, it it makes you free. But some people reject that because they want to be in bondage. And the reason they want to be in bondage is because they would rather have uh, pleasure in unrighteousness. It doesn't appeal to some as much as the lust of the flesh does. This is a hard message, y'all. And this is what these boys were preaching back in the day. That had them labeled as fanatics and crazy lunatics during their time because when this happened, everything was going great. It was beautiful. A land of plenty. And if you'll recall... Jesus even said in Matthew 24, as it were in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. There's a lot of meaning there. I won't get into all of it, but but he follows it to say they were eating and drinking and merry. They were having a good time. Then all of a sudden, bam! Tribulation sets in. The The likes the world had never seen. Awake, ye drunkards! Last week I was sleeping and I woke to a voice that said to me three times, Awake thou that sleepest. Awake thou that sleepest. Awake thou that sleepest. So I got up and I looked in my Bible to test the Spirit. How do you test the Spirit? It's got to line up with the Word of God. If it didn't, then I would disregard it. But here's what I found. Ephesians 5, 14-16. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 14-16. Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That word circumspectly literally means to be aware with great care of what's going on around you so you don't get fooled by some type of deception. So see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Here's why. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Here's what's crazy about this. I shared this prophetic dream from the Lord last week during Sunday service. But when I went back and watched the service that was posted, you know, later on, 
<clears throat> on Facebook, it was the only thing that wasn't recorded in the message. I went back and looked at it, and that, part's, that part glitched out. Alright, so when I shared this prophetic dream from the Lord, there was some type of glitch, at least on what was posted. I wasn't watching live, obviously. Maybe it came through live. I really don't know. But what was posted, I found, was cut out. Although it may be true that we're living in the last days, it may or may not be true. Who knows? And, that we, and it may be true that we need to stop wasting times, time on things that hinder our walk with Christ and the Gospel. It's not too late to repent and turn back to Him. It's not too late for you. He's calling us right here and right now. I want you to look back at Joel chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. For His camp is very great. For He is strong that executeth His word. I love that part. He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. That's very important. It's not about the outward appearance, it's about the heart. And turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. So church, it's not too late at all. I love what he says in verse 14 here. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion. In other words, sound the alarm. Let people know that the Lord is nigh at hand. Because we have no idea who is out there and ready to listen and to turn and to repent from their wayward and wicked ways and come back to the Lord God Almighty. Who knows if He will return and repent? I love that. That's why these prophets preached even in the midst of being ridiculed and laughed at and, re and shunned and rejected because they knew that somebody out there would eventually take hold of this message and turn themselves over to the Lord. He says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for His land, and pity His people. 
I could keep going on and on in these verses here. The next several ones in Joel 2 about God's faithfulness. But I'm trying to tell you that there aren't enough people weeping over the sin of God's people. Where are the ministers of the Lord who are broken over the adultery of the church? Let them come together right here and right now and bow down before the altar of the Lord and say, Spare thy people, O Lord. It's time for the people of God to rise up and to weep and to mourn for those who mourn shall be comforted in their greatest time of need. Thus saith the Lord. It's time to rise up. It's time to forsake your wicked ways and learn of Him. We could preach another feel-good message of you know, ten ways to get along with your kids while you homeschool them using biblical principle. But church, it's time to redeem the time for the time is short. The days are evil. It's time to learn of God's ways. It's time to get serious and to learn of Him. Look at Joel 2, 25 through 32. We're getting close, y'all. Bear with me. It's about to get very, very important. Please don't go anywhere. I will restore to you the years. Here's that if-then um, covenant. Yes, I've said a lot of stuff about my judgment. But please understand that when you come in line weeping before me and asking me to forgive you of your sins and, and to restore me back, there's a promise that I, that I shed for you. Joel 2.25 And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, My great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously for you or with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. I'm going to pause there for a second because church, there are far too many people ashamed of the Gospel of Christ which is the power of God unto salvation. Scared to be ridiculed in the name of science or education or to be called outdated and superstitious, but my God created science. My God created the heavens and the earth and all the universe. And His people have nothing to be ashamed of in reference to Him for any reason whatsoever. He says, And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. My God, help us. There he says it again. I wonder if he said that twice because it might be some reality to it, some truth to it, some importance for us to call attention to it. My people shall never be ashamed. It's time to rise up in the face of fear and cast that devil back to the place that he belongs. 
and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord is come. Y'all reference that to Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Revelation 9. Go back and study that in reference to that. That's that end times meaning. Yes, it was, this was written in 800 B.C., and this is a long time later, 2,000 plus years later, but it has as much meaning today as it did back then. Reference that verse there with Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Revelation 9. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call, y'all catch this, on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Church, it's time to return, to repent, and to see revival happen in the body of Christ. And to see a great awakening like the world has never seen. And see the lost called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. But it's going to cost the tears of the ministers of God. Of the which are all of you who are saved. We are all called to be ministers of the glorious grace and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to rise up. It's time to return, to repent, and to see revival in this place. I want to know, are you with me? Are you following me? If you're with me, we're going to close with this. Look at Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Joel 3, verse 9 through 14. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war, wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now y'all catch this in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It's time to make a decision. What side of the fence are you really on? Because when this goes down, the way that's being described here, it just may be too late. Church, right now, there are multitudes in the valley of decision. I shared with you a testimony of a total stranger coming up to me just the other day, hearing a conversation that I was having on the phone, with tears in his eyes, weeping before the Lord, Father, what must I do to become saved? And he asked me, is it even possible for him to get saved? Because he had been indoctrinated with hyper-Calvinism and the extreme doctrines of um, predestination, which is designed to bring confusion to you. It is the Lord's will that all should come to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Awake thou that sleepest, return, repent, and revival. Church, if you'll bow your heads with me, we're going to say a word of prayer because I really believe right now, all over the place, there are great multitudes of people in the valley of decision. And the Lord is telling you that He is right there waiting in that valley to meet you in your time of need. So if you'll bow your head with me and you will turn your heart to the Lord even now. And I know this was a hard word, but there's something about preaching and teaching the Word of God that is powerful to the point to where it draws people unto Him. And I know we've covered a great deal of information today, but the Lord is speaking to a lot of people out there right now who are in that valley of decision. And we're going to pray together right here and right now that God would meet you where you are and that He'll be faithful to do, as I know He will, exactly what He's promised to do. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much, God, for Your Word, for Your truth. Lord, my goodness, what a Word. Father, what a hard Word, a hard pill to swallow it is. But God, we're not, we're not preaching the Word of man. We're preaching the, Your words in spirit and in truth. So I'm asking that you would convict and make ripe the ground that the seed of your word is being planted in. Father, bring it to the forefronts of our mind with revelation, God. Help us to be mindful of who you are. Break our hearts, Lord, for what breaks yours. Father, help us to be in that place of weeping before you, because of the sins that's all going on around you, Lord, and, and even in the midst of your church, Lord, we've, got, we've grown to become so complacent, God, in our walk with you. And I know that you're right now using this as a means to an end 
to bring people to a place of repentance to return to You so that we may see revival in this place. Father, I pray for that person right now who is broken before You in the valley of decision. And if that's You, just like I told my daughter just the other day when she asked me, how can a person become a Christian? I'll tell you the same thing. First and foremost, we must recognize who we are. We are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And we can't restore ourselves in and of our own strength. And we know that because of the Bible in Romans 6.23, He says that the wages of that sin that we commit is death. But you've not left us there. You've given us a hope found in Jesus Christ. For the hope of God and the gift of God is not death, but eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And you tell us that whosoever shall call on, the, on your name, confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart that Jesus is Lord and died on the cross and rose on the third day, that person shall be saved, just like we just read also in the book of Joel. That whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be delivered. So if that's you, it doesn't matter how weird it may feel, to be in the comfort of your own home, wearing your night clothes, pajamas, or whatever it is that you're wearing. It doesn't matter. God will meet you right now in this place of decision. Bow your hearts. Like he, like he said, don't rip your garments. Don't do this as a show of outward repentance. But rend your hearts. In other words, turn your heart back over to the Lord. Give it back to Him. And He will meet you and deliver you right where you are. Father, if for those of them who are there now, I'm asking as they humble themselves before you that you will lift them up. In Jesus' name, we praise you and thank you and rejoice with all the host of heaven for those who have done so and will do so under the sound of our voice today. I love you, I praise you, and I thank you, Lord. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, love you, rejoice with you. If there's anything that you need, feel free to reach out to us, send us a message. We've got an 800 number, you can find it. Uh, we have two 1-800 numbers on our website. Go on there, you can leave a prayer request 24 hours a day. Or on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m., you can join with us, and all the instructions are on our website. You can join with us as a nationwide prayer conference to pray for the entire nation and beyond during this time of crisis. You can join in from anywhere. We've got people from Michigan, New York, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, hopefully all over the place. And we're just continuing to grow that ministry. You can join with us, your prayer. You can pray with us. You can actually participate in prayer with brothers and sisters all over. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, you can find that number on our website. We rejoice with you, we love you, and we thank you for tuning in. Share this video so that others may hear the gospel and the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.